Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Isn't it great that those three boys have been set free? I, that's a wonderful thing to celebrate today. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to begin in verse 29, and we're talking about order in the church. And I'm so glad that we're getting out of this whole discussion on speaking in a tongue, etc., what we've been dealing with. I just want you to know when you preach verse by verse, you don't skip passages. You've got to deal with them. Well, thank God we're getting out of that. We're going on to other things. It's amazing how close each of us are to living like a Corinthian. Now, what do you mean by that? If you, if you haven't been with us and haven't known for the last two years the study of the church of Corinth, you may wonder, what are you talking about, Wayne? Well, let me explain my term. My term for calling someone a Corinthian would be a believer who or professes himself to be a believer who's been well taught, thoroughly taught in the Word of God, but one who is not living a life surrendered to Christ. One who lives his life attached to fleshly things, a life that's not attached to Christ. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 12, of the Corinthian believers there, some of you are of Paul, some of you are of Cephas, some of you are of Apollos. You're attaching yourself to men. And Paul says, I wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. Why would you attach yourself to a man? Live your life attached to Christ. You see, we know so much today, just like they knew in Corinth. Corinth was the best taught church in the New Testament. But if we're not living what we know, then our purposes for what we do are no longer God-centered. They are self and man-centered. And as a result, when we gather to worship, it begins to filter out. That attitude begins to filter into what we do as we call worship, but isn't worship. It calls attention to ourselves and not to God. With that thought in mind, welcome to Corinth. That's what was going on. When they came together for public worship, they were not there to call attention to God. They were there to call attention to themselves. Evidently, the public worship of Corinth was such a circus. From what Paul says, they were all there just to show off. They liked to show others they had this spiritual gift or they had this spiritual experience. They loved that kind of thing. Not only that, they were speaking in a language that nobody could understand and they were speaking all at one time. And when somebody did speak something that was understandable, it was heresy. It wasn't even the word of God. And what Paul is doing here is almost an insurmountable task. He's stepping into the midst of nothing more than a flesh-minded church and he's trying to put order back into what? They were doing. He 
He wants them to know that when somebody speaks, it ought to be that person speaking alone. And when he speaks, it ought to be understandable. And when he speaks, he's accountable for what he says. When we meet to worship, it's not to see what man can do. It's to see what God can do through man. For we saw in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, that it's God the Spirit that gives the gifts. It's God the Son that gives the ministry. It's God the Father that gives the effect. And when we're surrendered to Him, then He gets the glory that He wants through us, not us. You see, it says He shares His glory with no man. Now Paul's addressing those who were speaking in the Corinthian church. Verse 28 and 29, he addresses those who spoke in what they call tongues, plural, but what Paul would call a gibberish, a tongue, because it was no language at all. And then to add to the confusion, as we said before, they were all saying and speaking at the same time. And if it does sound confusing to you as to what's going on in that church, you've got the point. That's exactly what he's dealing with here. Nothing but total chaos. It was a mess. Well, in verse 29, he begins to address those who spoke that which could be understood. He leaves the tongues issue, and he now moves to those called the prophets that spoke what could be understood. And he says in verse 29, And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Now, the little word and at the beginning of that verse in New American Standard is the little word transliterated D-E, the. It's a little word that's an adversative. You say, what's an adversative? Well, it expresses a contrast. He's contrasting something in verse 29 than that which he had just finished saying in verse 27 and 28. In verse 29, the contrast is that there's no if as there is in verse 28. Verse 28 says, but if there is no interpreter. And he speaks of somebody standing up speaking in a tongue. My definition of that a tongue, and I told you, you have to make up your own definition, but from the context is someone speaking in a gibberish, a language that was a non-language. The, the King James even says an unknown tongue. It, it was just, they would stand up and speak, and Paul says, all right, if you're going to do it, you do it in this order, and if there is no interpreter, let that man be silent. And of course, there can't be an interpreter when the language is not even understandable. But even if it was a known language, somebody must interpret what's being said so that the people can get something out of that. But there's no if in verse 29. There's no if. There, there's no interpreter needed when a prophet stands to speak. Why? Because when the prophets would speak, that was understandable. And it was in a, in a, in a mode of teaching and sharing with the people. Even when one is speaking, that which can be understood, there must be order and there must be accountability, and that's what Paul is about to get into. Remember back in chapter 12, Paul alludes to those speaking heresy in the church. You see, not only was the speaking erratic and a gibberish, and nobody could understand, and everybody was doing it at the same time, but also when somebody did teach, they were teaching heresy. He says back in chapter 12, verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. The word accursed, there's anathema. And it means Jesus, they were teaching that Jesus was under the curse. Just like every man that's born of woman. As if Jesus was nothing more than a mere man, which is heresy. Now, Paul is, is stepping into the midst of this kind of stuff. And he's saying, now listen, I'm putting some rules down as to who speaks in the church. Somebody has to be checking what's being said. Somebody has got to be accountable for what's being said. 
So not only does he deal with the erratic languages that they were, or gibberish that they were speaking, but he also has a word for the prophets that stood to teach the word of God. He said, now listen, there's accountability and there is order to the person who speaks the word of God in church. Now there are three things that I want you to see this morning. First of all, he's going to define, we need to define the term prophets. The second thing we'll talk about is the duty of a prophet. And the third thing, the discipline of a prophet. Who's he talking about here? What is he trying to get across to the Corinthian church? First, the definition of the, pro of the term prophets. There are two strains of thought here. When he addresses the prophets, as he, as he does in verse 29, there are two thoughts here. One is that they, he's referring to the prophets of the New Testament upon which our faith was built. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, you'll see that our faith is built upon the apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now these prophets were those who prophesied in one of two ways. They were extraordinary men. One way was to foretell the future. Agabus was one of those prophets who foretold the future. But then secondly, there were those who gave instantaneous revelation of truth that was not written down. You see, they didn't have the full canon of Scripture at that time. And so these prophets would hear from God and it would reveal that which God had spoken to them. These were extraordinary men used in a very extraordinary time and they were phased out in the early part of the early church. We have the complete word of God now. We don't need people like that. But back in those days they were very necessary and our faith was built upon, as I said, the apostles and the prophets. When Paul wrote the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and and uh, the first, second Thessalonians, all those, the three T's there, the pastoral epistles. By the time he wrote these epistles, these prophets had evidently disappeared. He speaks much about those who teach the word of God in those epistles. But, and he talks about pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons, but not once does he mention the term prophet. Those, those people had sort of disappeared off the stage. So in, in the view of some, they would say that the Corinthian church was such an early church and such a young church they most likely had some of these prophets in their midst. And so what Paul is doing here is talking to those prophets that were in the church that would tell forth the word of God and, and would speak in a, in a different manner than we do it today. And he was saying, this is my instruction for you. So some people view those prophets as those early New Testament prophets that spoke in extraordinary ways and God used in extraordinary ways. Well, but the second way you can look at it is that these prophets were simply the preachers of the Word of God that told forth the Word of God. You know, that word prophecy can be used in three different ways. To foretell, to tell forth, which we're talking about now, and also to give instantaneous revelation. And some people would say, well, th th he's just simply talking to the preachers of that day, those who would preach the Word of God. And uh, admittedly, if you look at his verse here in the context here, they did it in quite a different way than we do it today, if that's who he's talking about. But it doesn't matter which way you go. What I want you to see is either way, the responsibility is the same. And there are at least four different things he says about them. First of all, they must do what they do in order. Not at the same time, secondly. And thirdly, they must have respect for one another. And fourthly, they had to be accountable to everything that was, that was said. And, and the main thing that he's driving at in the verses we'll look at this morning is the last one. They must be accountable for everything that is said. 
The definition of a prophet then would be one who speaks God's word in a public worship service. No matter whether you take them to be those early extraordinary prophets or whether or not it simply be the preachers of the word of God, they are to be held accountable for what they say. They're the ones who bring forth God's word in a public worship setting. Well, secondly, then, the duty of the prophets. You've got to get by that definition of it because when you see the way they did it, you can begin to understand that it was quite different than what we are today. The duty of the prophets. In verse 29, And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Now, the word others there is in the plural to signify that there were more than one prophet there when the speaking was, was taking place. It comes from the word alos, another of the same kind. Uh, other prophets who are of the same heart and of the same mind, he said there are more than just one. Paul allows for more than one to speak, but it's not the number so much that it's important. What he's saying is I don't want everybody in the church coming in thinking they have a right to speak. No, no, no. Two, maybe three, he's trying to narrow it down. And if you're going to do two or three that are going to stand before the people, then let it be in order. Don't you do it at the same time. They're to pass judgment. He says they're to pass judgment. The pass judgment there is a word that you need to understand unless you think that they're there to criticize one another. <laughs> I've been in some preacher's meetings that that's exactly what it was. One would get up and the other would criticize him. It became a competition to who could preach the best. But that's not at all what he's saying here. The word that is used there to pass judgment is, keeps bringing our point out that they're there to make sure that God is being honored, that his word is being honored. It's the word that we translate discernment. It's diakrino, same word used, and I believe exactly in this idea, in this meaning, is found in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. The ability to be able to say when another prophet is speaking, yes, this is this, and that is that. This is of God, this is of the flesh. And be able to discern that when a person stands to speak God's word. Look in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Let me show you this. After talking to them about, you, you ought to be teachers, you've been taught enough, but now somebody's got to teach you the ABCs. You're not accustomed to the, to, to the word of, of righteousness. Then he says in verse 14 to these believers there in Hebrews, he says in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And that word discern there is diacrino. To be able to say this is good, this is evil. And the word good means this is of God. The word evil means this is of man. Boy, how important it is when a prophet speaks to proclaim the word of God that another prophet who also knows the word of God and knows God, the God of the word, is able to stand there and say, yes, that's of God. No, that's of flesh. And be able to say, this is this and that is that. And a prophet, you see, they're accountable to each other. There is an accountability for what one says when he stands to speak the word of God. Now, you must realize at the time of this writing, there was neither a complete written word at that time, nor was there a complete body of, doctrinal, of doctrine strictly formulated. It had not been formulated at that time. It was getting that way. It was progressing towards that. And so you begin to understand why discernment was so necessary amongst people who would stand up and speak before others. There is no room for a mixture of error in the body of truth. 
And so you had an accountability built in here. There was discernment among the prophets. When one prophet was speaking, there was discernment in the other prophets listening to what he said. The other prophets had not only the understanding of the content, but the spirit with which something is being said to others. And I think that principle still holds today for anybody who stands and speaks the word of God. I'm thankful for the teachers and the preachers in this particular body of Christ. They hold me accountable for what I say. They also encourage me when I say it right. <laughs> They're willing to do both. Years ago, I spoke on Caleb. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I was in a hurry to get to my point, so I made this statement. I said, Caleb crossed a river he had never crossed, went into a land he had never seen, claimed a mountain that he had never known. And I, it just sounded good when I preached it. After the service was over, I didn't even realize I said that. After the service was over, <laughs> one in our body of believers came up to me very graciously and said, Wayne, that was, oh, I enjoyed what you said, but let me ask you a question. Weren't there 12 spies that crossed that river, went into that land, viewed that mountain? And I'm thinking, yes. <laughs> I am so sorry I missed that. Hey, I've done some worse things than that. I was teaching one night and I was in a hurry to get to a point in Revelation, and I made this statement. I said, right here, right here, in, in the particular chapter in Revelation, the two and a half witnesses go up. Now, I don't know how you get two and a half witnesses, but that's what I said. It was at the three and a half year, three and a half year part, and I said two and a half witnesses. And I said, also, the sovereignty of God is finished. I meant the mystery of God. <laughs> how do you stop the sovereignty of God? And then I made the statement, I said, and the 24 elders sat on their face. <laughs> Had no idea that I'd said any of that. I looked out and I saw some of the teachers in the body and they were just laughing. And some of them were crying, they were laughing so hard. And I said, I know I have said something wrong, but what is it that I said? Brother Sparrows many times has walked up to me. I love it. One time he walked up and said, Brother Wayne, I'd like to talk to you about that verse sometime. I said, why, Brother Sparrows? Did I miss it? He said, oh, no, you never touched it. Thank God that what's said in this pulpit is not thus saith Wayne. You have to have that accountability. You have to have the built-in discernment of those who know the Word of God that when somebody stands in this pulpit, they have the right and the, and the absolute, they need to do it, to correct that person to make sure that truth is preached without error. And it's not only what is said, it's the way it's being said. And in Corinth, Seriously, folks, it was a circus. If you could understand it, it was heresy. And if you couldn't understand it, it was this gibberish. And everybody speaking at the same time, thinking this was a spiritual service. Paul says, no way. If you're going to have a prophet to speak, not more than two or three. And if they speak, they speak in order, not at the same time. And they pass judgment. They have discernment. As to who's speaking, they're accountable to each other. Somebody better be checking what's being said. That's his whole point. Well, the definition of a prophet then would be somebody who speaks the word of God. If you want to make it those early, extraordinary New Testament prophets, I can see why you would. Or if you want to make it the preachers of that time, I can see why you would. Bottom line is that then they speak, they do it in a certain order, and it's the content of what they say and the spirit with which they say it. And then secondly, the duty of a prophet 
is to make sure that God is heard, to make sure that the Word of God is preached in the way it ought to be preached. But the third thing will take us a little longer, and that's the discipline of a prophet. Now here's where you see the difference of a prophet speaking and these people standing up speaking in a tongue, in a gibberish, when Paul himself said, they don't understand what they're saying, neither does anybody else, and if an unbeliever comes in, they're going to think they're crazy. Now he's going to contrast, contrast them right here. Here's the difference in the two. A prophet, one who speaks for God and, for his, and speaks his word, is to be so under the control of the Spirit of God that he's in control of what he's saying to the people. A prophet is to be in control of what he's saying to the people. Not out of control, in control. Look at verse 30 through 33. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. There's your key verse. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now you've got to remember, it's next to impossible to reconstruct what was going on in the Corinthian church. We don't know anything like that today. It was quite different. One of those extreme type of situations. It was such chaos that it's very difficult for us to enter into what Paul was dealing with here. Paul is un trying to unravel it trying to put some order, some sensibility back into the times when they come together for public worship. And the old Jewish synagogues, if you'll study the Jewish history in the synagogues, you will discover that one of the ways in which they had was a practice which evidently had crept into the Corinthian church. One would stand to speak. And if another was sitting here and saw him speaking and, and had something to add to it, he would stand. Well, when he did, this one who was standing would sit down and he would be allowed the floor and he would finish up or, or add to or whatever, a fresh revelation to what this person had just said. Now, if one of them were wrong, another one could stand up and when he stood up, you had to relinquish the floor and he would correct what was just said as if there was error there. He would make sure that it was put right. Now, that's a practice we don't do today, but that's a practice they did then. And in the church of Corinth, that's exactly, it seems, exactly what Paul is dealing with here. That's exactly the way they were set up. Perhaps that practice of the synagogue had eased into itself into the church at that time. In verse 30, this seems to have been their practice. Someone would stand to speak. Another would perhaps have a revelation to that. And so the person standing would sit down. He would stand up. Or maybe somebody had something to correct the point is that when this other person stood up, you had to relinquish what you were saying to let him finish what he wanted to say. Now, that's not the way we do it today, as I said, but that's the way they did it back then. There was no complete written revelation of God's Word, so it was quite different at this time. In verse 30, But if, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. Now that little phrase, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, gives you the picture right there. The one who's standing is the one who's speaking. The other prophets are seated at that time. Now, you have to admit, again, their custom is different. For you can all prophesy, verse 31, one by one. Now, the order of speaking is the keynote for us today. The way they would speak, you, one by one, not at the same time. 
There was never to be two people talking at the same time. For you can all prophesy one by one. That's as clear as the nose on our face. And again, Paul shows that the content of what, what is being said is so important. For you can all prophesy one by one. Why? So that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Now that, that's something we've got to camp out on for a second. The word for learn, you might be... Uh, Overwhelmed at this, but the word for learn is manthano, which is the word for disciple. Now, what is it that when we become a believer, he says baptizing those disciples, make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We come in as disciples of the Lord Jesus. We come in as learners of him. So why would you come together for a public worship? You'd come together to learn of him. How? Through his word. And so he says, Every, it doesn't matter who prophesies, but the key is that others might learn. Then secondly, he says, that all may be exhorted. Now the word exhorted is the word that parakaleo. It means to take, when, when God's word so comes alongside somebody's life that it gives him practical instruction as to how to apply that word to the given circumstances of his life. Why do people come together? Why is there a necessity for preachers? Why is there a need for people to stand up and proclaim the word of God? So that people might learn and so that people might be comforted by the word in the given circumstances of their life. Now that's why the people came together. That's why you had a prophet stand and speak years ago. I, I backed out of counseling, and most of you are saying, and thank you, Wayne, we're so grateful you backed out of it because I'm the worst counselor that ever lived. I, I've always thought that a counseling session ought to last about five minutes, <laughs> two and a half minutes for you to tell me your problem, two minutes for me to have you read a passage of Scripture that relates to your problem, and 30 seconds for you to answer me. Yes, I believe that, or no, I don't believe it. If you do believe it, then I can tell you, good, you go live it, I'm going fishing. That's just my idea of counseling. Now, I'm grateful that there are others in the body of Christ that have different ideas. Let me tell you something. Brother Spiros told me this. Roy Hessian told me this from England. Many people over my years have taught me this. Wayne, do not spend your time in a study somewhere or in, a, in an office somewhere counseling people. You spend your time in the Word of God, and when you stand in the pulpit, counsel them from the Word of God. And that's what exhortation is. It's not just the truth explained. It's the truth made applicable. And when truth can come alongside you, then a person has not only learned, a person has been comforted, a person has been exhorted by the Word of God. That's why people come together for worship. You say, well, Brother Wayne, I didn't come for that this morning. Well, you came with the wrong reason. You come to learn. You come to be exhorted in the Word of God by that which is spoken and by that which is sung. Now what's Paul's point? You're not comforted, nor do you learn when somebody speaks in a gibberish that nobody can understand, or when two or three people stand up and they're all speaking at the same time. Nobody's learning, nobody's comforted. Now put some order back into what you're doing. Do it in order and make sure what you says, what you say helps people to learn and exhorts them in the different areas of their life. Now, in order for learning, in order for exhortation to take place from a prophet who teaches and preaches God's word, verse 32 has to be in place. And the spirits of prophets are subject 
to prophets. Now, that's at, the, at first reading, you're thinking, what is he talking about there? Well, hang on. It's not that complicated. You see, those who are speaking, it's important for a prophet, a preacher, to be in control of what he's saying. Now, the only way he can do that is to be under control of the Holy Spirit of God. Then he can be in control of what he's saying. Very important for that. A prophet has to be in control. But those who were speaking in a tongue were totally out of control. What was the word word that the unbelievers would call them? You're mad. You're crazy. You're under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit of God. Because what you're doing is a circus and all it's doing is producing chaos and confusion in the body of Christ. That's why the contrast here of one who stands and speaks in a tongue is so different from the one who stands and proclaims the Word of God. One's out of control. One is in control of what he's saying. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. By this he's saying the prophet is in control of his own spirit and must be when he speaks. The word for spirit here used in this context is a word that refers to that part of man where he thinks and where he wills. Now when that is out of control, when a person is speaking, the way he thinks and the way he wills, Maybe an emotional frenzy has overcome him. Maybe something else. And he does not have any control over what he's saying. Then the man is out of control. And when he's out of control, people do not learn and people are not exhorted with the word of God. But when the man is teaching and admonishing with the revealed word of God, he's surrendered to Christ, he's under the control of God, then he can be in control of what he's saying. He's in control because he's under control. Now, why would Paul bring this out? Why, what is Paul doing here? Why does he go from this over here to prophets and then say that a prophet's got to be in control of his own spirit? Look at verse 33. Just keep reading. It's amazing the commentary the Bible gives on itself. Verse 33. For God is not, in any way, shape, or form, a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, this thing just absolutely teaches Itself. Was there any confusion going on in Corinth? Was there any confusion going on in Corinth? Hey, that's the main mark. That's the main characteristic of the church of Corinth was confusion. But what does he just say? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, God is not the author of it in any way. I think the King James says God's not the author of confusion. For God is not a God of confusion. The word there for confusion is this. It means that which is unstable, that which is in a state of disorder, that which is in a state of disturbance. Now you see where Paul's headed? He talks about those who stand up and speak in a tongue. Whoa, that's, you're disturbing, you're out of order, there's chaos and confusion. He talks about the prophets. He says, now listen, it's going to continue to be that way unless you have an order to you. You better be in control of your spirit because God is not a God of things that have disorder to them, things that have disruption to them, things that bring confusion. He's not the author of it. He's not the originator of it. does not come from him. Where does it come from? It comes from pure flesh. That's where it comes from. Then he goes on. But God is the God of peace. He's the God of peace. The word there for peace means the absence of conflict. The absence of conflict. When there's something is harmonious. You know, you listen to a beautiful symphony that's playing in orchestra music and and you, you hear all those instruments so beautifully blended together that one is not conflicting with the other. They're joining together and there's peace. There's peace. 
Now, when God is in charge of what's going on, when he's in charge of a worship service, there's somehow going to be that kind of peace. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to surrender to the word and those who don't are not going to have that peace in their heart. But what he's talking about is when God does it, there's, there's something about his peace that blends with it. For God is not a God of confusion, verse 33, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, this is, this is important for Corinthians to understand that disruption and disorder and disharmony can be in other places and God's not the author of it. And you see, they had division, et cetera, in Corinth, but they had division in other places. Ask the church of Philippi when Paul had to write the second chapter when he says, esteem others as more important than yourself. And he says, have this attitude in yourself, which also was in Christ Jesus. And then over in the fourth chapter, he had to, to really reprimand Iodia and, and Syntyche because they couldn't get along with each other. Two women that couldn't get along with each other. Now listen, when there's that kind of disruption, when there's that kind of a problem, God is not the author of it. But when God's word is preached in purity and a man who speaks is under the control of the Holy Spirit of God and what he's saying is, is he's in control of because it comes from the word of God, then there's going to be that peace to those who are willing to listen to it. Ask the church of Galatia when somebody got in there and taught them a wrong doctrine and how that peace was disrupted. And they started adding law to grace and Paul wrote that. You know, Galatians is Paul writing Romans mad. Doesn't take you long to say what you want to say when you're mad. Ask the church of Galatia if that statement is not true right here. That God's a God of peace in all the churches. And when that peace is disrupted, God is not the author of the confusion that results. Flesh has entered somewhere. And it probably came from the pulpit with wrong doctrine. Wrong doctrine does not bring peace. Right doctrine brings peace. As a result of it, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What is wrong with you? You got saved by grace. Are you trying to be sanctified by law? In the flesh? Ask the church of Thessalonica what Paul is talking about. That, that disruption of peace in their whole, whole church was caused by somebody teaching them the wrong eschatology. Teaching them that they were in the day of the Lord when the day of the Lord hadn't even come yet. And, then, and, and, and the fact that they didn't even know what to do with the righteous bodies of, the, of those who had died. What's going to happen to them? And somebody had misled them and disruption had entered the church and confusion had come into the church. What, what Paul is telling the church of Corinth is well, a prophet had better be in control of what he's saying and the only way he can do that is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit of God and it be the Word of God and when the Word of God is preached in truth corrected by other preachers and teachers holding the man accountable then there's peace in the body of Christ. When you find disharmony and division in a church now hang on to this somebody has either taught it or has submitted to it it's a wrong doctrine and it's brought chaos and it's brought confusion into the midst. And God is not the author of confusion. When the word is taught so that people can learn and people can be exhorted by the word of God in knowing what to do and applying God's word in life, then there's peace, not confusion in the congregation. There's no, there's no conflict with what's being said. You know it's right. And even though conflict may come in doing it, but there's no conflict in hearing it. When you hear it, you know that it's right. A prophet, or as we should say, a preacher is responsible for teaching the Word of God. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, we've studied this. I want to remind you of what a preacher, a prophet, one who tells forth the Word of God is responsible for. And it says in verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries 
of God. And that word servant means to be an under rower. An under rower. You remember the, they had ships and they had on the bottom of the bottom deck, they had these, everybody would row at the same time. And, and they had a, a man who was command of that. And he would say, row, row, whatever he would say. And every time he'd bring his hand down or say a certain word, they'd all pull and they'd pull and they'd pull. And what it means is we're servants of Christ. Whatever he says, we do. We don't answer to man. We answer to God. A true prophet answers to God because he's responsible first to him. But then secondly, he's got to be a steward of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God, that's your word of God right there. That which can only come by, no, by revelation. That's why the word prophet eases right into the word preacher because we, do, we don't discover truth. God reveals truth to us. And so he said a preacher is responsible for this. And when he preaches this way, in order, with content, in the right spirit, then God's going to bring peace to those who hear. Peace, there's no conflict in what they're hearing. They see it right in front of them. It's what the Word of God has to say. There is no confusion when this takes place the way it ought to take place. So the definition of a prophet is one who speaks to God's people, God's Word. The duty of a prophet is to make certain God's Word is taught. They're to pass judgment. They are to make sure that God is being heard. The discipline of a prophet is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit to such a degree that he's in control of his own spirit. And therefore he knows what he's saying. Something else, some other spirit is not controlling him. He's being controlled by the Spirit of God, so therefore he's in control of what he's saying. And when that takes place, there's peace, there's no conflict, there's no confusion, there's no chaos. People can hear it and understand it, and there it is. Now, the chaos may come and the confusion may come where they choose not to obey it. But as they are hearing it, they're learning and they're being exhorted by God's Word. I'll tell you, I'm kind of glad to get out of the tongue thing, <laughs> but it seems like it doesn't quit, does it? Because the next time we come together, guess what we're dealing with? <laughs> the women speaking in the church. I'm thinking, Lord... Get me out of the 14th chapter. Get me over to 15 and talk about death. I feel like I'm dying every time I get up here and try to preach these things. And I tell you, I'm so grateful to this church. I really am. The letters that I've gotten, the hate letters. Whoa, did I get one this past week, about seven pages. They didn't sign it. Doggone. I, I am. I'm, I think I'm going to start putting them on the bulletin board like I used to years ago over here in the hallway so you can recognize the handwriting. Maybe you know who these people are. <laughs> but I haven't gotten any from this body. And I want to thank you for that. Whether you agree or disagree, thank you for walking through it with me. Thank you for reasoning in the Word with me. Thank you for loving me because this is not easy scripture. To know that I don't have that many more Sundays left and to know that I still have to wade through this is not the most exciting thing in my life. But at least we can take it verse at a time. I want to tell you something. In Littleton, Colorado, as we all know what has taken place there, the reports that I'm getting of what God's doing, the good He's bringing out of it, is just overwhelming. It's overwhelming to me. But I want you to think about something. You know what brings peace to those people? You know what brings real comfort to those people? God's Word taught properly in the Spirit of God. That's what's bringing peace to them. Now you can have a service with them and try to pump them up emotionally and you may think that really did something for them. No, sir. Go home with them when there's no church around them and no choir around them and those precious people that have suffered like they've suffered and there is no peace. 
There's only questions. But when you teach the Word of God as the Word of God says and speaks, and you teach it in control of what you're saying because you're under control of the Holy Spirit that authored it, peace comes immediately to the hearts of the people that are listening. And I tell you what, it's wonderful to look out and see Carl Hammett sitting out there. Carl, I love you, buddy. I know you love me. But I tell you what, Carl told me something recently. He said, you know, Wayne, I preached and believed all my life the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he told me on Easter Sunday, he said, but I'm living in its power day by day right now. And you know what that does for Carl? Helen gone on to be at the Lord. You know what that does for Carl? Peace comes in his heart. How can peace come when you lose your best friend and your life mate? How can it come? God brings it because what he says is truth and that truth frees us and puts a peace in us that God's in control of it. It exhorts us. It comes alongside us. That's what Paul said. You people that are standing up, spouting off at the mouth, trying to show you have this gift or that gift and all this circus events that's going on, what peace is it bringing? It's brought nothing but chaos and nothing but confusion and nothing but division and hatred in men's hearts. But when the Word of God is preached in its context, people learn and people are exhorted and peace comes back into their hearts when they hear what God has said. Well, next week, if I'm not here, I'm sending, uh, Brother Haywood's going to take that subject. I'm, I'm going to probably skip that one. I'll come back in chapter 15. <laughs> You're going with me. I, I remember one time we were, I, I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm through. Uh, we, I'm not in control of what I'm saying right now. <laughs> That's when Diana, when I step out and I close my Bible, Diana sweats, big beads of sweat. Because at that point she knows he may not be in control of what he's saying. <laughs> no, I was just going to say when we were in 2 Peter and it talked about those who were saved by water. <laughs> by the way, some people use that as a proof text that you had to be water baptized to be saved. I hate to tell you, but the people that got wet, drowned. <laughs> but anyway, people, but the way it's written, it's a little difficult to unravel. So I just didn't feel well that morning, and I had Brother Spiros to do that for me. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that next time. Well, I love you. Peace only comes when God's Word is preached, when God's Word is taught. The prophet better be in charge of what he's saying, and to do that, he's got to be under the control of the one who spoke it. And when he is, people that hear it receive it in peace because they see it in the context. They realize nobody's struggling to make a square peg fit in a round hole. It's peaceful. It doesn't bring confusion and chaos. That only comes when people won't respond to it. But as they're hearing it, it's peace. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.